Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode three of The Rise of Superman. Mr. Kotler has been teaching us all about flow, been teaching us about how action and adventure sports athletes are actually on the forefront of fucking human performance in all things. He explained a little bit about the explicit system, the implicit system, how flow allows us to do massive creativity and pattern recognition, and how it also just feels fucking good. Crazy stories, wild people, and he ended the last episode asking us if that is possible, meaning that guy who just jumped down a cliff, but then he grabbed the rope, and then he like held a baby bird and became one with the dead bird. If that was possible, what else? Is possible. The first thing Michael Swanson did when he exited the building was check his reflection in the mirror. It wasn't vanity, it was protocol. The building was the Willis Tower, formerly the Sears Tower, 108 stories of cold steel, black glass, and modern ingenuity. And this fellow, he was severely afraid of heights, and just the height of the tower made him nervous. But looking up wasn't the issue. See, Swanson hadn't exited from street level. He did not use the main door, the emergency door, or a side exit. No, he had jumped off the roof. And in the history of humanity, nobody had been able to figure out flight. You know, bird people had been trying for fucking years, and everybody's been dying. Literally everybody who went down the road has been killed along the way. The body count was so high that even mentioning the word wingsuit at skydiving competitions in the 1980s was enough to get you thrown off the premises. But it all changed when the market stepped in and somebody came up with a wingsuit that copied the design of a flying squirrel, even putting ribs along the wings. And Michael Bay, the director of Transformers, happened to see wingsuit flying and decided you know what, I'm going to be the first director to put wingsuit flying into an action scene. So Bay brought in a whole crew of people, big wave skiers, big mountain skiers, skydivers, members of the Red Bull Air Force, which is really smart that Red Bull is like such a big company that they sponsor all these action and adventure things. Like very good Red Bull, very nice, but arguably the greatest assembly of skydivers and base jumpers and wingsuit flyers in the world. With over 80,000 jumps, 80,000 jumps, and a multitude of national and international titles among them, these five pilots were already the best of the best. But if they were gonna survive jumping off the Willis Tower, they were going to have to get a whole lot better quickly. For starters, no human being had ever jumped off the Willis Tower before and lived. Also, very few wingsuit pilots had flown through a city. And it also, like, maybe wasn't quite tall enough. You know, 1,500 feet was, like, minimum that was really allowed. And this was, like, right about like that. But more alarmingly was the wind. You know, in the mountains, the wind moves like a river. In the city, it moves like a pinball. 
And then when they put their heads over the side of the Willis Tower for the first time, he says it felt like getting punched. The wind was blasting up the building. It was a bad moment for everyone. We had a really long think. They were all kind of like, uh, but, you know, like, I'm getting paid a lot by that guy who's directing Transformers. Like, eh, I think it's only bad, like, the five feet near the building. So, like, we'll just have to jump really hard. So they got that kind of handled. But the real concern was line of flight. So, so that means, like, hey, if you jump off a mountain, you can just go straight. Well, if you jump in the city, there's a shitload of buildings. What are you going to do? The jump from the south side was intense. It was gnarly. But they thought it was doable. Barely. Within three seconds, they would reach terminal velocity. Then they would use the speed to thread the needle between a row of buildings before making a sharp S-turn around one skyscraper and a hard right around the other. Think about that. So they're going to jump off the building. They're going to they're gonna go three seconds. They're going to be at terminal velocity. Three seconds. They're going to do an S-turn. And then they're going to curve around... And they start calling this that curve suicide corner because they have no idea if it's actually possible. <sighs> so they're like, well, I know we're getting paid a lot, but like, you know, it doesn't really help actually. Um, fuck. And so for all these reasons, before any jumps were attempted, Holmes made a demand unheard of in any movie stunt coordination. He wanted the entire team flown to Switzerland for a month of training. He wanted to find near vertical cliffs to practice formation swooping, tight turns, close proximity, and more. So he's like, hey, I don't know if this is possible, but like, we're all fucking crazy enough to die for you. But before we do that, I need you to pay for a month of training. Okay, it's just a month. Just pay for a month of training. We're going to go to Switzerland. We're going to jump off a shitload of cliffs that are, that are totally vertical. And then we're going to just like simulate as best as we can with all these drills so we probably don't die. They practiced... ESP, extrasensory perception. Now, Mr. Kotler's like such a good writer that he like alludes to things that are impossible and he positions everything really persuasively also like Tim Ferriss. So like, eh, no one's really psychic here, but, and, and then he also, he also like jumps from one story into another story nested inside and it's like so logically consistent. So he's, he's backing out of that Switzerland example where, you know, okay, they're all like, they've got to go practice ESP. And he moves into a psychological study explaining uh, a psychological study of some folks that had started studying ESP or at least extrasensory perception, like faster. Like how could, are, are there groups of people that are, are just better at, at finding out things, at figuring out things? And so in, in 2011, um, there were two groups of students, normals and athletes. And so they, they decided to play a little great game of Frogger. And so the, you know, they're, so they're studying like reaction time. They're studying, you know, cognitive ability. And so Frogger's that game where you like jump across the road as a frog and try not to get run over by cars. Okay. And so, um, they, they put on VR goggles and they wanted to see how normal kids fared against division one athletes. And so they had to run on a treadmill and try to cross a virtual busy street filled with traffic. In the end though, there was a huge performance gap between the athletes and the normal people. You know, normal people, they only made it to the other side like 55% of the time. Athletes, 72%. But it wasn't because the athletes were in better shape. 
It wasn't because they were quicker or they were more agile. They were noticeably better at dodging and weaving through traffic. They couldn't move faster, but it looks like they thought faster. And so we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, but neurons that fire together, wire together. The more times a particular pattern fires, the stronger the connection between neurons becomes and the faster information flows along this route. This is learning and it leads to chunking. And so we learned about this on the talent code. And that's what we were saying with like the explicit system. Like when you start, you're just going down that sledding hill, you're practicing, you're like trying to do it, but then you burn in a chunk and you burn in another chunk and you burn in another chunk. And what the previous episode was talking about was how flow actually allows you access to all those fucking chunks and you can become like a creative maestro. Um, chunks get added together with other chunks until seeing the front edge of a tiny pattern allows us to make very complicated predictions about the future. It was these predictions that explain why the athletes playing Frogger outperformed the normals. So if you've had, if you've had decades of balls coming at your head, when you see something coming at you, you've built serious fucking pattern recognition that if you've never had a ball at your head, you're just, you're just not going to have. Because sports usually involve making calculations about approaching objects in reaction time. And something similar happened with the base jumpers preparing for the movie Transformers. The Red Bull Air Force went to Switzerland to learn one another's tics, tendencies, and techniques, their patterns. So, first of all, such a good writer, dude. You know, you nest in a supporting psychological study inside the story. You pick back up the story and you throw in some alliteration. Respect in their diamond formation. Uh, some guy named Mike was behind and to the left of JT Holmes. Uh, this meant his in-flight focus was entirely on the back of Holmes's left shoe. So he had to learn all the nuance and subtle patterns like, hey, when JT's heel twitches slightly left and down, he's a second away from initiating a steep dive. That's crazy. So they had to practice so much that like, you can't be thinking about it. You have to practice it enough that you, oh, his, his foot slightly twitched. I know that that slight twitch means steep dive. The goal is to cut out consciousness. Swanson doesn't have time to see Holmes twitch, decide what it means, and initiate his own dive. He needs to have learned the pattern so well and trust his implicit system that has already identified the chunk and triggered the reaction. By the time this info trickles into his consciousness, he's already mid-swoop. So it's like he's so in tune, he sees the foot move, and then he just drops in and moves himself. Swanson had another advantage to this effort. He was in a flow state during the jump. They all were. It's the reason they survived the trip around Suicide Corner. Flow turns predictive pattern recognition into full-blown ESP. There's some basketball legend guy who says, uh, he has a nice quote that I liked. He says, every so often a Celtic game would heat up so that it would become more than a physical or even mental game and it would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. All that level, at that level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. 
even before the other team brought the ball in bounds. I could feel it so keenly that I, could, that I wanted to shout to my teammates, it's going there. My premonitions would come true, and I always felt not only knew all my teammates by heart, but all the opposing players, and they all knew me. The Transformers base jumpers weren't just trying to predict the future, they were betting their lives on the predictions. By the time we left Europe, I could read emotion in the back of JT's shoe, I think that guy named Mike says. And now, it was time for their trip around Suicide Corner. They dressed quickly, putting on their wingsuits in the street besides the Willis Tower. They're in the elevator. No one remembers who punches the floor. Someone probably farts, but no one really cares. It's a short trip. Their skyward chariot clocks in at 18 miles per hour, going the length of five football fields in less than a minute. Ironically, in a testament to how good wingsuits have become, despite the fact that they're going to go up, they're going to jump off the roof, the elevator went up faster than they will come down. They get up on the roof. Chicago, like a carpet, unfurls before them. Good writing, my dude. Good job. The view is clear. Sky. The view is clear skies and 50 miles in every direction. But their gaze is already spoken for. God damn it, man. You're fucking Rembrandt over here. In the southwest corner, a black ramp over the side. A pirate's plank into a yawning abyss. That sounds scary as hell. What the fuck was I thinking, JT wants to know. And that's when the adrenaline hits all of them. A pulse-pounding wash. The thrill ride before the thrill ride. None care too much for the feeling. In fact, despite the frequency which many dismiss these athletes as adrenaline junkies, the term is actually one of the greatest misnomers. Very few enjoy the rush. Some kayaker says, I'm the furthest thing from an adrenaline junkie. So that's actually interesting because I remember the first time I was deer hunting being like, what the fuck is this shit? And, you know, I was just like overcome by this adrenaline rush. And there was a deer at 50 yards out of bow range for me at the time. And I was like, please don't come over here. Please don't come over here. I can't handle this. I can't fucking handle this. But then you end up getting used to living in the pocket. And you, you realize that, you know, yeah, the world looks different. You know, it looks like it's from that like Mad Max show. Uh, but you can you can live here. Up and down still exists, your hands still exist, and regardless of what you're feeling, you're capable of executing the skill. And after you realize that, that's when you're able to jump into that flow state of like, okay, cool, this is a thing, this is just a variable, I've been here, let's fucking do this. Because in flow, options are wide open. The Red Bull Air Force calms down differently. They circle up and have a quick powwow a few moments before the impossible. There isn't much to say. You good? Check. You sure? Check. A quick, this is what we train for. Then, that most fabled sound in action sports. The countdown. Three, two, one. Dropping. Going over the edge is bad. The first three seconds are worse. It takes three seconds to fall about 90 feet and accelerate to terminal velocity. The more air rushing over the wings, the more rigid they become, the more control the pilots have. So he says, once the wings are pressurized, it becomes automatic. You know, it's like driving a car. That's when I calm down. That's when my conscious mind snaps off and I dive into the zone. And for four of the five, that was their experience. But the fifth, Andy, well, he encountered a blast of dirty air. Combined with an updraft, 
there was too much turbulence to inflate his wings. For those few seconds, I was looking around, and he was like, um, fuck, maybe this was a bad idea. But it's too late to abort. He's off the building. This is where all the flow time in Switzerland came in handy. Training in high-stress situations increases what psychologists call situational awareness. Defined as the ability to absorb information accurately, assess it calmly, and respond appropriately. It is essential to keeping cool when all hell breaks loose. In this case, all his training allowed Andy to not fight, flight, or freeze, rather to flow. Fuck you. Good job, I guess. He stayed calm. He got through the dirty air. Then my wings started to pressurize and I turned my attention to JT's shoe and we were off. Yep, they were off and heading straight for Suicide Corner. It did not disappoint. Going round Suicide Corner felt like I was making a really sharp turn in a jet airplane, except there was no airplane, just me in these forces. But they were also so deep in the zone that they all said it felt like someone else was flying my body. Without flow, none of this would have been possible. The Red Bull Air Force floated safely to the ground. It was the highlight of all their career. It was their Super Bowl on the moon. What an unbelievable rush at Swanson. And about this last part, there is no debate. Flow is a rush like no other. Or to put it another way, Flow is the telephone booth where Clark Kent changes clothes and Superman emerges. In our quest to map Flow, and see how it amps up performance, there's still one component missing, performance over time. Yeah, is this like just this one-time thing that happens? Like you touch it once and then like that's, that's all you get and then it's so magical? How do you do this a thousand times? Well, the question isn't how flow helps these athletes do the impossible once. It's about them doing the impossible over and over again. It's about long-term mastery, not short-term success and a question most certainly raised by the ascension of Shane McConkie. By almost any measure, McConkie did not follow the standard path towards mastery. So it's like, how the fuck do you do this over and over and over and over and over? And then also, um, it's about mastery. But Shane, that fellow that we learned about who was naked, he, uh, he did not follow the standard path towards mastery. Consider the trilogy, that means three, of his most famous, meaning he's done more, Naked Spread Eagles. The number one Shane McConkie Naked Spread Eagle took place in an unlikely place. So this is like a couple years after college. Um, you know, he graduated Burke Ski Academy in Vermont. He was super good at skiing, but you know, he got cut from the U.S. ski team for being too small. So he moved to Vail, which is a ski resort in Colorado. And he tried to be a pro mogul skier. And he did well. He won some competitions. And then he entered a competition at Vail. And now, you know, so my parents had a, a place at Crested Butte, which is close to Vail. Uh, so I've actually skied those um, backwoods extremes I talked about, but I've actually skied at Vail too. And uh, Vail is like, imagine, imagine the New England Patriots. So dominant, corporate robotic, eminently competent but soulless, arrogant, 
all now imagine if the entire starting lineup of the Patriots all got fired at once in 1960 and they took their New England Patriot attitude and, and chips on their shoulders and and they all built business empires you know they they befriended princes they engaged in nepotism and on their third divorce all on testosterone replacement therapy and they talk about you know if you truly calculate your hourly rate on your time you're losing money if you do yard work they soothe their black and tattered spirits masquerading as souls they all pool their money into a resort to remind themselves that they are better they are better $25 beers $40 burgers culture class protocol Veil. So, on his first run, McConkie fell and was eliminated. After his second run, he was already eliminated, so he decided to celebrate by tossing a backflip. The crowd went nuts, but so did the ski patrol. They kicked him off the hill since inverted aerials, backflips, were illegal at that sphincter puckered time. But McConkie, already famous for introducing his dick into situations where it wasn't invited, but like likable enough to get away with it, yeah, he had a better idea. He snuck back onto the mountain. He got back to the starting gate. He stripped to the buff. He streaked the race course. And of course, he threw a series of naked spread eagles along the way at Vail, the most infamous in the history of skiing. And Vale, in their wisdom, banned him for life. The only one allowed to show their dick without asking for permission is me. You see, I was on the starting lineup of the New England Patriots. Marge, bring me my CPAP machine, Sauvignon Blanc, and Ambien. After I'm done with this whippersnapper, someone's salad is getting tossed. We are Vale. The stories are endless. You know, McConkie threw backflips back on, on one ski... He moonwalked on snowblades, whatever the fuck that means. Um, he invented some legendary ski film movie character named Saucer Boy. Um, and someone was describing what it was like to room with this superstar. Apparently, he would always wake up first. So he was a morning person. And he would tickle all of his, his roommates. And he'd say, wakey, wakey, hands off, snakey. Then he'd poison the room with his farts. He'd clog the toilet with a massive coiler, which I never heard that term, but okay, I think it means a poop. Um, then he would show all the most disgusting things he could find on the internet, and then if we were lucky, we'd go skiing or something. If we weren't, the process would repeat itself all day long. So that's not the typical genius, man. That's, not, that's, an, that's no Isaac Newton over here. Yet this does raise one additional issue. How does an undersized, washed-up racer with a penchant for practical jokes, porn, and showing his penis become the person who will be described as the ski world Superman? In 1995, Sheen was bussing tables and skiing naked for cash. Less than a decade later, he was a legend. But against what odds? By the time McConkie's star really began to rise, he'd already abandoned the traditional structures of athletic excellence. So, you know, he's not, he was not on the New England Patriots. He was not on a workout plan. His workout plan was, was smoking weed, eating Fritos, and getting fucking crazy. McConkie had jettisoned the whole deal, but somehow climbed to far greater heights on his own. The same puzzle surrounds most of the early action and adventure sports stars. Before the X Games came along, these guys were ski bums and surf burnouts for good reason. The party never stopped. 
Forget about drug testing. Drug taking was almost mandatory. And Mr. Kotler, he actually thinks we should all do drugs. I disagree. But in less than two decades, these rebel misfits would push the boundaries of human performance to astounding heights. To say this community exceeded expectations is an understatement. These folks started out as dirtbags and ended up as samurai. How exactly did that happen? So now Mr. Kotler's again smart as hell, and so he's going to give us the, the party line response. So this is like according to psychology and according to, you know, the canon of people at Oxford, this is the answer. But then he's going to say, is that really the answer, bitch, or is the answer flow? Title, Mothers, Musicians, and Marshmallows. So over the past century, the science of expert performance has gotten rigorous and codified. Thousands and thousands of experiments have been run, plenty of conclusions reached, and three dominate. Let's call them mothers, musicians, and marshmallows. The wrench, most action and adventure athletes took a radically different path. In fact, it suggests something far more radical, that if we really want to be our best, we don't have to rethink, we don't just have to rethink the path towards mastery. We need to reconsider the way we live our lives. But first, the mothers. Oh yeah. Mr. Collins, I know where this is going. Lonely, hot, single moms. What? In 1980, some bitch, but he was a guy, set out to study talent. He studied 150 people all under the age of 35. And these people had all demonstrated like the highest level of skill in one of six fields. So like swimming, tennis, sculpture, whatever. And this bitch was convinced that like talent was innate and what we call mastery is like a talented individual is nurtured, is allowed to blossom. But afterwards, the data told a different story. Few of Bloom's research subjects showed any great promise when they were children. The only consistent thing was encouragement, lots of encouragement. Prodigies, it seemed, were made, not born. AKA the mothers, you know, mothers are encouraging them. Um, Bloom told reporters we were looking for exceptional kids, but what we found were exceptional conditions and it democratized expertise. So I don't know if you all know about this fella named Brandon Schaub, okay? Um, he was a former NFL player, uh, then became a UFC fighter, and then now is trying out comedy, but he's not that good at comedy yet. But he has been at the highest levels. He beat Andre Arlovsky in the UFC. Um, he's been at the highest levels of multiple different disciplines. And so he just sold his fucking soul into comedy and became an apprentice. He willingly looked fucking stupid and still does on all these podcasts with these comedians who are these like fucking savants dancing circles around him. He tries a joke and they haze him. And then the internet jumps on and then like... I think he's really horny too so i think he like fucked some guy's girlfriend but like she wanted it but like still not cool and um so everybody hates him but i will go on record to say that dude has been at the highest levels before he is doing all the right things he is growing mastery and he is putting himself in that environment for encouragement lots of encouragement and the, and that prodigy you know it's about to be made i'll say it provided the right environment, this meant that everybody has a shot at perfection. It meant there were no chosen few. And I, dude, 
I know. This is the whole reason I started the podcast. Like, just deal with it. This idea blows my mind. But that's insane because everybody in the world right now is wrong about that. Okay. They think that this is just like, well, you know, I'm really, really talented. And so, like, I figured it out. And so, there's all this mysticism. Like, at work, man, if you if you do a good job at work and you're successful, you get all these stories attached to you. It's like, man, he's just got the it factor. You know, he's just really, man, he's just, he's just cool under pressure. It's like, no, dumbass, I'm not. I just have, like, learned the skill of sales. But since everybody in the world doesn't understand that, that's this is one of the biggest arbitrage opportunities out there. If you don't know something... <laughs> Just go learn it, and I guarantee you can. And you can learn it quickly and all the things with the you know, the Shane McConkie naked spread eagle. Just apply that to whatever you're trying to do. And then you're going to find yourself all of a sudden, everybody's going to think you got all this talent and you've just been a genius. And it's like, I'll let you think that because that imbues me with magic, but you're wrong. But this is where Stephen is pushing back a little bit. And he says, okay, you know, environment, I get it, is impor- important, but... Many of these athletes involved in action and adventure sports came up the hard way, the wrong environment, little encouragement, broken homes, freaks, and misfits. And so Bloom, the mother studier, wasn't wrong. Mothers matter. But too many of these super athletes came up sideways, backwards, and feral for this to be the single deciding factor. Something else is going on. What a good transition, dude. And that something else is where the musicians come into play. And they bring up our boy Anders Ericsson, who found out that truly experts in every field have practiced somewhere around 10,000 hours. Now, Tim Ferriss taught us that we can do that more efficiently. We can, you know, be smart. We can do the dis and cafe method. We can deconstruct the skill. And you know, maybe we do 3,000 hours, but it's 10,000's effectiveness. But deliberate practice, a lot of time. Mr. Kotler throwing a wrench in this he's saying but that doesn't sound very much like these badass skiers you know they're not practicing drills they're basically just junkies trying to find that next high of the zone and finally that brings us to marshmallows and so we've probably talked about this marshmallow experiment but you know studied kids laid out some marshmallows said hey kid if you can wait 10 minutes you'll get two marshmallows but if you want you can eat this one and over fucking generations the kids that could delay gratification were better in all ways okay got it but another wrinkle mr kotler points out by definition aren't all these action and adventure junkies sensation seekers they're impulsive pleasure junkies what gives how do a bunch of impulsive hedonists raised far from the storied incubators of athletic excellence end up rewriting the book on human potential the short answer is of course flow the long answer is where philip zimbardo comes in hey it's our buddy from the time paradox episode uh he got heli famous from the stanford prison experiment but then after impregnating 800 women not owning one not two but six golden ak-47s he decided that he was not a pussy and he also wanted to have one of the most storied careers in psychology of all time and he pronounces human human and so Mr. Kotler brings up time perspectives. And so go listen to that time paradox series from this, this here podcast. Um, but, but the summary is there's, there's three types. There's present, there's present, past, and future. And so everybody has like an orientation towards how they view time. And so past, you can either be like, 
man, my life has set me up negatively. Or you can be like, man, my life's pretty cool in the past. Present, um, you know, you need to be like either present hedonistic, like experiencing the moment, loving it, eating the delicious food, or you can be present fatalistic of like, oh, just another piece of shit day. And then the future, do you like, do you plan for the future or not? And so the whole thesis of that time paradox thing is like being future oriented is really good because that's when you put in that deliberate focus practice. But Steven's just trying to rewrite the whole game. And so he says that flow actually feels so good that flow is doing the future's work. It's doing that slow, deliberate practice. It's better than that. But those those crazy ass sensation seekers they they like it too you know flow reorients presence toward the future and the future towards the present and both to considerable result flow releases a bevy of potent feel-good neurochemicals at once arguably the most powerful cocktail the brain can produce you know and this is true like when you're when you're getting in the zone with archery where it just feels like you're just driving tax like each perfect fucking arrow going exactly where you want it it's like one fifteenth of an orgasm. You add up thirty arrows. Well, there's a reason the phrase "fire pants" exists in the English language. And flow, flow is its own reward. These activities are intrinsically motivating, done for their own sake. The high to end all highs. And it's better than other drugs because it it's an escape forwards from current reality. The other drugs are backwards. So he's saying. If you do flow, you're actually propelling yourself to new levels of performance. If you just get hammered, you're just like, you know, piece of shit. Flow carries within it delicious possibility. In this state, we are aligned with our core passion, and because of flow's incredible impact of performance, expressing expressing that passion to our utmost. Some guy in some book described it as, the person I become was the best possible version of myself. The person I should have been throughout my life. No regrets. No hesitation. There was no false moves left in me. I really believed that I could hit a mosquito in the eye with a pine needle at 30 yards. I couldn't miss because there was no such thing as a miss. It didn't matter what matter whether I fell or not because I couldn't fall. Any more than 2 plus 2 can equal 3. That's an insane description. That's like when I was playing insanely fucking good pool back in college... There wasn't even any doubt or hesitation. It was just like, okay, I know I'm going to make this shot. And then I just make the shot. But Steven is paying this picture to say like, yeah, that mothers, marshmallows, and musicians thing, that's cool and that's part of it and that's helpful. But forget 10,000 hours of delayed gratification. Flow junkies turn instant gratification into their North Star, putting in far more hours of practice time by gleefully harnessing their hedonistic impulses. Now, I might have to push back on this for a little bit. Um, and I actually texted Jordy at, right now when I was preparing for this. And uh, he and I went back and forth on this. So, like, obviously deliberate practice is a key or the key. You know, and the, and the huge point of deliberate practice is you will be doing it when you don't want to. Like, if you only shoot your bow when you fucking feel like it, you might shoot your bow like four times a week on average but like over three days you might shoot it like 16 times but like it's just not really not really sustainable or controllable and so you know the deliberate practice is you're just going through the motions when it feels like shit when instead of not being able to miss you couldn't imagine not fucking up everything sucks 
but you just keep pushing. You don't get too attached to it. You just let time pass. And then you hit that one perfect shot. And you're like, oh, what if I just didn't suck? And you drop into flow. And after that flow state's done, you know, that could last five games of pool, but probably not 20 games. You know, you emerge 20% better. It, you know, I think that that flow is the thing that rips you to higher levels. And so I've started this year trying to practice my recurve bow. And so the compound bow like is the one that looks like that crazy machine. The recurve bow is like Pocahontas's bow. And so when I first started, dude, at like 20, and, and with the compound, I was pretty good. Like I would get four out of five in a pie plate at 50 yards. And like, you know, in actually on a deer, it'd probably be like two out of five because I'd be like, ah, I'm pissing my pants, but I was pretty good. And I went from that to shooting with the recurve bow at 15 yards, not even being able to hit the target. And so I just set up a, a, a game and I'm like, at 20 yards, let me see how many times I can hit the target. And I, it was like, one, three, one, three, five, one, 10, 10, five. And then I, I finally got to where I, I was at 13 and 13 was like the max. I couldn't go past that. And I stayed there for like three weeks. And then all of a sudden one day I just dropped into flow and I, I hit 27 in a row. And then immediately that became like that drill became too easy. Like I could, I could hit, I could probably hit 20 or 25 in a row. No problem forever. So I was like, okay, let me make it a little bit harder. And so I was like, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to go to 25 yards and I'm going to try to shoot a pie plate, which is, is what you have to shoot to kill a deer. And so I was like, I'm going to hit this as many times in a row as I can. And so I was like, one, zero, one, zero, one, two, two, three. And then I spent fucking a month at three, a month at fucking three. And then again, same thing. And, and actually this, this session, I remember it. I was feeling shitty. I was, I was like shooting like crap. The first four arrows were horrible. And my mind, I was like, God damn it. Maybe I should just fucking quit. But I'm like, whatever. Just, just try one more, one more, one more attempt. And then I dropped into something and I hit three. Then I hit four. Then I hit five. And then I got all the way up to 13. And then boom, I'm immediately at this new level. And then I had to move the target back. And so I, I think that like deliberate practice is obviously what gets you there. But then flow is like that burning it in. You know, it's like when you've got the frayed rope and you, you use the lighter and then now now the rope's not frayed. Um, that's my guess. So, but he's basically saying that like flow, you don't even have to do deliberate practice because flow just takes you there. But like, you know, I, I look at that as growing up, I did, I love to spar. But if I wanted to get really good at something during sparring, I didn't get enough practice at it. So I'd have to like, take that offline and if i if i like couldn't do a spin sidekick perfectly i'd have to practice that a hundred times and then i would flow in sparring and then i would do it so like kind of disagree but hey man you're on to some good stuff athletes in flow in death facing situations likely gather more relevant data and code it more efficiently having the experiences frequently could significantly shorten the learning curve towards experience and he's pushing back on the mother's marshmallows musicians thing saying we've missed a vital point it doesn't have to fucking suck you don't have to sacrifice your whole future you don't have to do hours and hours of deliberate practice i disagree but he says with passion and play as the gateway to performance and possibility we no longer have to mistrust ourselves 
We can harness our hedonistic impulses using moments of spontaneous joy to shorten our path to mastery, which is, of course, exactly what Shane McConkie did. You want more proof? Let's turn back the clock to the mid-1990s and take a trip to Squaw Valley, California and ride the Broken Arrow chairlift. Beneath us sits some of the steepest, strangest terrain on the mountain. It's Salvador Dali strange. The landscape appears to have been made by wet sand passing through a closed fist. All sorts of shoots, drops, multi-stage cliffs. Among them is the line now known as Sacrifice, though calling it a line is being generous. So he's saying, so, you know, hey, now we're on a chairlift, we're going up this ski run, but when you go up a mountain on a ski lift, you like look down, you're like, oh, it's so beautiful, look at all the snow, and he's like, this looks like a 15-year-old's face with pimples everywhere and the only place their snow was on the pimples how the fuck are we gonna get down this you know these 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 giant shoots there's these cliffs and shane mcconkey he wasn't too sure but he had been eyeing sacrifice for a while instead of rocks and death he noticed a tiny patch of snow above each cliff maybe he could hop and pop and connect those dots and he could jump from zit to zit to zit until he was down the fucking face and in the ass. He'd need speed. He'd need to do a hard left midair, land on a dime, immediately leap right, zigzag a 25-footer, then stomp the landing and straight line off into monster air. But sacrifice was his type of fun. Somebody said that Shane loved trying to find the hardest way down the mountain. It was almost a compulsion. Seek out the impossible and dream up ways of navigating further. In that way, he was literally a visionary. He saw things that other people didn't. He read the mountain differently, seeing lines that others couldn't. He also started skiing those lines, which brought flow, which upped his performance, which made other lines possible. In 1998, Shane's logic led him to sacrifice. He nailed the line perfectly, and the hop and drop ski technique known as Billy Goading was born. As Billy Goading required new skills, it led Shane further down the flow path, which led to even more skills which opened up new possibilities, possibilities which drove him forward still. And Mr. Kotler's point is that McConkie's results are insane, but they did not come from him spending his whole adult life trying to shave four seconds off his time in the giant slalom. Instead, he just saw lines and started perf- pursuing flow. But again, I disagree. I think they're not mutually exclusive. I think if we ran history 50 years in the future, all these like drug addicted like fucking wild people they're successful because they're onto something but in spite of their habits like you can't tell me that stronger legs and a better diet would not help how far can we take this Flo and michael Chickensack, they discovered it's everywhere this means that all the superpowers detailed in this first section of the book are available to any and all of us this is who we are and how we're wired flow is our birthright But what we do with that knowledge, as always, that part is up to us. And if you want to learn about the final part, about what to do about all this knowledge, about how to use it in your actual life, the last and final episode of this series, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.